Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAGAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Hi, welcome to the SAG-AFTRA Foundation Conversations at Home. I'm Janelle Riley from Variety. The SAG-AFTRA Foundation has a COVID-19 relief fund to support SAG-AFTRA performers who are in urgent need as this pandemic continues. Since March of 2020, the foundation has given over $6.1 million in aid to 6,500 performers and families facing extreme hardship. If you're a SAG-AFTRA member and you need help, please ask. And if you are able to support our community amid this crucial effort, please give. Information can be found in the description of this video. And now it is my pleasure to welcome today's guest. He is a four-time Oscar nominee, a Tony Award nominee, a novelist, director, producer, oh, and also an actor. You can currently see him starring in Showtime's The Good Lord Bird. Please welcome Ethan Hawke. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, this is an audience of SAG after actors. And so I always like to start by asking, how did you get your SAG card? Well, I got my SAG card when I got cast in the Explorers. And I, I remember um, going to the building in LA. You know, I, it was unbelievable. I was 13 years old and I got this part in this major movie and I had to join the union. And Ronald Reagan was president. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, I mean, because he had been president of SAG and walking through there and uh, signing my name. And the person told me that, uh, well, they thought my name, I'd made up my own name. That's a good name you picked. And I was like, hey, I'm 13. It's my God-given name. I didn't make this name up. But yeah, so I've been a member since 84. Wow. It, it is a good name now that I think about it. You couldn't have picked like a better stage name if you tried. Yeah. Yeah. Well, give all the credit goes to my parents. <laughs> um, you mentioned, I mean, you started acting at a really young age. Did you, did you know this was something you wanted to do for a career or were you just kind of a kid having fun? I think that, you know, children love to play. I mean, children are amazing at painting and, uh, Children write beautiful poems. You know, I mean, our, our natural creativity is, is something that comes out of us very easily when we're kids. You know, it's not to be corny, but it's a little bit like love, you know? I mean, kids love animals. They love nature. They love toys. They love playing. And uh, life beats us up, you know, and we get guards up and we get, we, we brace ourselves. We're, we're worried. And it gets harder to maintain that love and that playfulness. So one of the things that's been challenging over a 36-year career uh, is maintaining that love and, and letting it evolve and change. The reasons why I'm an actor now are not the same reasons that I was an actor when I was 13. I, I think I had some innate interest obviously in performing but i also think i, I quite put simply wanted attention <laughs> so I, I don't know if I, you could think about it any more deeply than that 
Is that still the case? Do you, do you still want attention? Healthy attention. Well, hopefully, I, as you evolve, you want to do something con- constructive with that desire. You know, if, if you feed that desire in a neurotic way, it's never enough. Yeah. Well, there's never enough attention and always attention ends up turning negative. One minute people like you and next minute they don't like you. And, uh, and so you have to find a healthy relationship to your own desire to be heard and understood and try to do something constructive with that desire and not just kind of neurotically feed yourself. It's just funny that I, I think we start out seeking so much attention and the older we get and the more attention we get, we start to like back off and want to be alone. <laughs> It's so true. You, you start to want, you start hearing your own voice, hopefully more clearly. And then you start wanting to hear that voice, I think. And, and, and other people make that voice harder to hear. Uh, and, and so I still love acting, but, you know, I, I like to rehearse now more than I like to perform. Really? Yeah. You also found massive success when you were still a teenager with Dead Poets Society. Um, It wasn't just that it was a hit film. It was a seminal film. It was a beloved film. Did you know when you were working on that, that it it was going to be something special? You know, I had been so burned by the experience with the Explorers. When when I, I did the Explorers, I felt like, you know, it was such a big deal to get cast in a major Hollywood movie. In 1984, they weren't making that many movies. And for a studio to be making a $30 million movie, it was equivalent to like a $100 million movie. You know, it was a big deal to get, they did a nationwide search. And I felt like I'd won the lottery or something. And then, and then that movie was a big failure. And that was very hard to wrap your brain around as a kid because you know, I loved Joe Dante and he was a great mentor to me and I felt like I'd let him down. And, you know, I had all these dreams where they would do the, they were reshooting the movie with River Phoenix and Jason Presson and another kid, you know, that, so, you know, that, that was a reoccurring dream I had for a couple of years after the Explorers came out. And so by the time the experience of Dead Poets Society happened, I had really steeled myself that even though I knew we were having an amazing time and I felt like we were doing something good, I'd had that feeling before and the world had not responded positively to it. So I was very braced uh, to get punched. You know, I, I was very, I don't think I realized what a hit the movie was till like a year after it had been out. You know, I, I, I had so kind of was protecting myself. But I did know that it was an incredible experience we were having. I guess I'm surprised to hear that because Explorers was such a huge part of my childhood. I didn't realize that it was a, a box office failure. That's why it's so, you know, it's funny as I study older actors and other careers and I read about their disappointments about certain films or projects. And you're like, why, why do you care what society, society is an idiot. You know, society is not the best critic of the, quality level of each year. So uh, I'm always, I was reading some, you know, article. It was, a, I'm making a documentary about Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. And it's really interesting to study the lives of, of other actors, you know, as, 
And I was reading an interview with Joanne where she was really devastated about uh, this film. She did Summer Wishes, Winter Dreams. And I was like, why? I, I, I want to as I want to be her friend and say, hey, dummy, it's a great film. You're only going to be in a handful of films. Don't who cares what you know, you had a great experience. Love it. Um, but I, I know I go I feel the same way all the time. I mean, in a way, it's that's a good lesson to learn early on um, and really probably set you up for a career where maybe it helped you against discipline. Oh, I, I know it helped me. I, I, I know it helped me tremendously. And it, it's, you know, what's that Dylan line? There's no success like failure and failure is no success at all. Um, it, it, it helps. It's just, I had the same experience with my Broadway debut. You know, it was a terrible, you know, we got terrible reviews and nobody came to see it. And uh, it was with Laura Linney and I were doing uh, the seagull and, but it was a great experience because you get forged in that fire because if you're kind of like what we were saying about whether you're in it for the attention, you start to discover, wait, I love doing this, whether the audience likes it or not, you Mm -hmm. know, and, 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 and that's, you start to find ways to find fulfillment from the simple process and not for anything that happens after the process. Well, after uh, Dead Poets Society, you you did something that I think actors three times your age um, take time to learn, which is that you were really choosing diverse roles. I know you did Dad with Jack Lemmon. Um, you did a comedy, Mystery Date, a family adventure with White Fang. You were, you were displaying all this range. Now, maybe you were just taking the roles that were available to you at a young age, but it's it felt like you were trying to avoid being pigeonholed. Uh, I, I very much was. Um, I was very conscious for some reason about how few young performers can transcend into being adult performers. And by the time Dead Poets Society had come out, I had fallen madly in love with this profession. The experience of working with Peter Weir and, uh, and Robin Williams and, and, and following it up with Jack Lemmon, you know, nobody, very few people ever saw the film, Dad, but it was a powerful experience. I, I was on set for a a long time. They, we shot that movie forever. They, they, Gary David Goldberg was the writer. He kept writing news. We shot it forever. And so I had this, I got to spend hours with Jack Lemon in a hair and makeup trailer. I was 18 years old. I'd listen to him talk about Lucille Ball and doing live television with her and his time during the war playing piano and his whole relationship to performance. It was a it was a powerful experience. He, he was extremely funny and extremely humble. And he was the kind of person, even though when I worked with him, he'd already won the odds. He was already a card carrying legend, but if you spent 15 minutes with him. You forgot he was famous. He had no airs. Um, and it was, it made the profession seem like a, a worthwhile trade, like a craft worth learning. Um, and so I was very aware as a young person to try to keep growing and putting myself in different kinds of movies so that I could change as an actor because I, I, I didn't have that much confidence that I could do that. Yeah. Uh, at the time, were you turning down other roles? I mean, how did your representation sort of feel about this? Because coming off of Dead Poets Society, I, I, I imagine everything was being thrown at the actors in the, that, that movie. Yeah, I remember, but you know, you, 
you have to, um, you can't rely on representation to lead your career. You have to lead them. It's not their responsibility to figure out who you are. It's your responsibility to figure out who you are. I remember, you know, they would want me to do some TV show or I remember there was a real pull to, I was just a little bit younger than the Brat Pack and I sometimes got offered movies to be with them and I was very conscious of trying not to be part of a, I wanted to be my own person, you, you know? And so there was some pressure, but I always was surrounded with nice people that understood when I explained the kind of actor I wanted to be. You know, I had a very formative experience around the same time I got to work at Joe Papp's Theater at the Public. I worked on a new play that was also a failure, but I got to work with at Joe Papp's Theater and uh, on a new play. And that was the kind of experience I was hunting for. Mm-hmm. And I just had to beg them to be patient to play the long ball. I mean, theater is something that has been really important in, in your career. I, it's funny. I, I only learned today because I was literally just speaking to Laura Linney um, that the seagull was not a successful, was not critically successful. I, I had no idea until both you and her just mentioned that. <laughs> well, we were, we were permanently scarred from that experience. <laughs> but you didn't give up. You kept going back to theater. Oh, hell no. I mean, you know, that's, you can't give up, you know, I mean, we're not, we're in a collaborative medium. You know, one of the things I have this great director who said this thing to me once, I said, are you going to the rap party? You know, and he said, no, I never go to the rap party. And I said, why not? He goes, because when you're the director and it goes well, the, the play we had done had been a big success. He said, when it goes well, they think it's all my doing and they don't understand that we did it and I direct plays that are bad I you know you know and I the theater movies these are a collective imagination and you're not a it's you don't need to take your success that seriously and you don't need to take your failure that seriously because it's when it goes well like Dead Poet Society for example it's a little alchemical magic you know something gets created that's bigger than one individual. It's, Tom Schulman wrote a great script. Peter was brilliant. Robin Williams was brilliant. But we've all done bad projects. You know, it was just somehow the energy formed right and and it it grew. And it's, you don't have to take that much responsibility for it. You just have to take responsibility for your effort. And I should point out that your luck on Broadway um, improved. You got a Tony nomination for The Coast of Utopia. Uh, like, a classic um and uh you had your own theater company or maybe you still do i i actually don't know oh, not anymore not anymore is it, is it malaparte is that yeah, how it's- malapart yeah malapart. and i just learned that you sort of ran that with jason blum yeah yeah wow. jason and i started that company when we were about 21 he was just graduated from vassar and uh you know he was one of the few young people running around new york that was in love with the arts, but who everybody wants to be a movie star or a film director, right? But Jason was this amazing young guy. He's like, I want to be a producer. And he, he wanted to make things happen for other people. And he, he had a vision of what he wanted to be. And, and we started a theater company. We had a ball. Well, it's, I assume that you first came together on The Purge and Sinister, mm-hmm. and, and obviously now he's uh, doing Good Lord Bird with you. I had no yeah, idea. But he first produced, I mean, we did these theater, we did these 
I don't know, five or 10 theater productions together. And then he also produced Hamlet, uh, a film of, you know, that I did with Michael Amareta. That was the first film we made together, Hamlet. Wow, I didn't know he was producing films even back then. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, what do you love about the medium of live theater? I, you know, uh, it's, it's terrifying, but it's also exhilarating. The theater is ultimately, it's the actor's playground. I mean, the, one of the things that's really hard about acting in movies is that we are incredibly reliant on the editor. You know, I often feel when I make a movie, I feel like I've rehearsed a movie and the editor makes the film. You know, they, 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 it's like they observed our rehearsal and are deciding what the best bits are. When you're on stage, you're deciding the rhythm. You're deciding the energy. If you like it playing it silly, that's the way it's going to go. You know, if the editor doesn't like to take you did silly, they find one a little less. And, and then you get reviews where they say he was taking it too seriously. And you're like, I wasn't. It's a freaking editor was taking it too seriously. And, and a lot of people who um, are watching movies or in love with movies or criticizing movies don't understand that, you know, how, how the, what's that line, how the pudding gets made or whatever, how the rub, you know, whatever that expression is. Um, the, it's, it's a very, very collaborative art form. And the theater, you are in charge of your own gift. You know, I, I like to say this about, if you, if you sit at your television, right? You're at Netflix or Apple TV and you're clicking around. You can watch, you can flip through a hundred different shows and you very rarely see an actor suck, yeah. you know? And the reason is the actor has a lot of help uh, in film. You have a cinematographer and they're, if your hand's shaking and being really distracting, they frame it out, you know? Uh, if uh, you can't deliver that one line, they cut to the amazing, your scene partner. And there, there's a lot of people around to help facilitate you. If you go to 10 Broadway shows, you'll probably see five or six performances that suck, or, or maybe a lot more. Uh, I'm being funny and, and glib, but it's a lot harder to use your whole body and use your whole voice to try to cast a spell. And you don't have that much help. And so it's really an actor's workshop because if, if I can play Macbeth alone on stage and I can deliver all that and I can cast a mood and I can cast a spell, then when you come to play John Brown and you have all this help, it's, it's like, you know, it's like people who train running in, in New Mexico where, the, you know, it's really difficult to run. And then you come run somewhere else where the altitude's not as high. It's a lot easier. Taking weight off, it's so much easier when you have all this help. It's, it's still very difficult, I should be clear, to give a great performance on film. To, you know, but to be okay is not that hard. The thing that fascinates me about theater is you can give, you can give a terrible performance and then the next night it can be a great performance. It's so ephemeral. And, and, you know, I see a bad performance on stage and I just think they're a bad actor. And then it's actually happened where I've gone back to see the play again for whatever reason. And they were phenomenal. Yeah. So, so you, mysterious. You just, but, you know, some actors are like that. We're all really different. You know, uh, there's some actors that I've worked with. Um, they're just always terrible in the first take. Or, or, or some that are always great in the first take. Like you start to learn, like, 
let's not start shooting it until the camera's really ready because the first takes always their best. Um, and then there are other people that just keep getting a little bit better, you know? And I sometimes have a short attention span, you know, I, I, I'm really good in the first couple takes. And then I start getting bored with what I'm doing and start changing it too much, mm. you know? And I'm not realizing that we're not doing other takes just for me. It might've been that the light was wrong or it might've been the, you know, the props broke or whatever. Uh, you have worked with so many amazing actors over the years. I mean, Denzel Washington and Sally Hawkins, Robin Williams, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, you obviously have a very impressive career on your own, but is it ever challenging to not get intimidated? You know, especially something like training day where like Denzel Washington is terrifying you throughout. You know, Acting with Denzel is a little bit like playing baseball with Babe Ruth or something, you know? I mean, once uh, he's operating at a really high level, he has, I think he has all the equipment that an actor could require. I mean, he's not deficient in any category, you know? I mean, he, he, can, he, he can do it all. And working with him, you know, I did a funny thing on that movie, um, I watched a lot of Denzel Washington movies. I, I was a huge fan, but before I did Training Day, I watched a lot of his films. I was trying to see who else was really good yeah. with him. And a lot of people tend to start to watch him act. I, I, if, you, if you start watching, like I, I started, when I saw Crimson Tide, I watched Gene Hackman. I was like, oh, Gene Hackman isn't trying to impress Denzel Washington. He's not trying to be his friend. He's not trying to help him. You, you know, he's not, he's, Gene Hackman is taking care of his own work. And I, I told myself that that's what I have to do. I don't, I don't have to be Denzel's friend. I don't have to, uh, he's got lots of friends, you know, he's got people to go to Lakers game with. What he needs right now is somebody to play Jake. You know, I need to be this person inside and out. My imagination needs to match his. I need to know what's in my pockets. I need to know my character's, middle name what high school he went to I need to have my my stuff taken care of and if I could bring that onto set with him then I don't need to worry about anything else but that you know I don't need to worry about whether he likes me or whether he likes what I'm doing in fact he doesn't need to Gene Hackman wouldn't care right so why should I and that helps preparation is the best thing you can have uh, for nervousness I think that you just have to be it's impossible for somebody who operates at that level for as long as he has with the integrity that he has to not be intimidated. Yeah. It's intimidating, but I'll tell you what, I left that film a much stronger actor. Well, I mean, obviously whatever you did worked, you landed your first Academy Award nomination for best supporting actor. Um, and I, I don't mean to be reductive because you, if, it seems like you've always worked and you've always been giving great performances, but was something like that a turning point? Cause it was, it was a very serious movie. Um, now you're an Academy Award nominee. Does that, does that change your career at all? Yeah, it changes. It changes the way, you know, Unfortunately, perception creates reality a little bit. And uh, like I said, you know, we're, us actors are only as good as our opportunities. And so when the perception is that you are capable, you get better opportunities. Um, the transition that happened to me on that movie actually happened to me one movie before. 
Um, I did this film called Tape with Linkletter. Uh, and I don't know if that was, I think that might've been the third film that Rick and I made together. And I had an incredible level of confidence working with him. He's a really brilliant person and he really believed in me. And, and a little bit like an athlete who has a, a coach who believes in you, you know, like if it's the bottom of the ninth and you, you're two outs down, you're, you, you, and, and you need a run and the coach says, Hey, I want Ethan at bat. You know, like it, you don't shrink from that because you go, oh, the coach, of everybody, the coach wants me to, and well, he must think I can get a hit. Damn it, I'm going to get a hit. You know, and that's the feeling that Rick gave me. He thought, he thought I was a great actor and I knew he was really smart. And so I wanted to be the actor he thought I was, you know, I mean, he thought I could be Jack Nicholson. You know, he is, he was, he really had high hopes for what, for the wall of my talent. And that belief was very inspiring to me. And so on that set, I found a level of relaxation and comfort and playfulness that I tried to bring with me to set with Denzel and Antoine Fuqua. You know, I, I, I tried to imagine that if I, could, if I could bring that level of confidence that I'd had in the intimacy of a, of a movie with one of my close friends, if I could treat Denzel and Antoine the, the way that I treated Rick. And I did. And it was really fun. And the three of us got along really well. And we had a lot of laughs and we, we had a lot of, there was a, the creativity was really flowing on that movie. And so on one level, yeah, it's the Oscar nomination. On another level, something had happened to me developmentally where I was, I was ready to, to play in that environment. I love that you mentioned tape because that that is almost it's a play that I didn't think could be adapted into a movie. And they did such a day. You all did such a wonderful job with that film. And it's kind of ruined me because um, every year an actor friend of mine wants to do a production of tape because it's three actors, one location. Yeah, they, they think it'll be easy. And I'm like, I can't ever see another production of tape. There's a perfect one already out there. Like, like, don't do it. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was fun, you know. In light of the Me Too movement and stuff last year too, I really felt like that that movie is strangely uh, really relevant. Again, I, I hope that people see it because I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm curious, how did you first meet Richard Linkletter? Was it did was there an audition or you know he wanted to meet you? Because because this has gone on to be such an incredible collaboration over the years. Well, you you know when Jason Blum and I were running this theater company, Malapart. Uh, one of the plays we did was called Sophistry. Um, it was written by Jonathan Marks Sherman and Anthony Rapp was in it. And Anthony Rapp was in uh, Days to Confused. Now I had seen Slacker. Slacker had just come out and I'm from Austin. And so I was super curious about this movie and, and I loved it, right? It was like the first punk rock movie I'd ever seen. I, I, I loved it. And and I was really curious about Days of Confused. And, and Anthony invited me to an advanced screening. And I remember Steve Zahn and I, Steve Zahn was in the play too. And Steve and I, on our day off, you know, we snuck a 12 pack into this screening room and, and watched Days of Confused and just had a ball. And, but I really felt something was wrong in the universe that I, I was supposed to have been in that film. I mean, I just like, it, it, it made me insane. <clears throat> 
And so Rick came to see Sophistry to see Anthony. Um, and we went out afterwards and I told him, look, there's, there's a wrinkle in the universe, man. You're, you're supposed to be working with me. And, and we talked for, you know, I remember we went to the corner bistro in, in uh, Greenwich Village and, and we talked till 4 a.m. And, and a, f- a couple weeks as I, you know, memory plays tricks, but as I remember, I got in the mail this script for Before Sunrise. And when the first script, it was set in San Antonio. It was very different and everything, but uh, that's how we became friends. Wow, that's amazing. I love that when all roads lead back to theater. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you're doing a performance for 12 people in the audience, but it just has to be the right 12 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking There's of all great, the- Since we're doing, since we're, we're talking to actors and stuff, I, I had this profound experience when uh, I worked, I had a tiny little part in uh, a Robert Redford film called Quiz Show. Tiny little part. And I had a little scene with Paul Schofield, but I was always really, I love Paul Schofield for people that don't know him. I think he won the Oscar for a movie called Man for All Seasons, but he did a million amazing movies. And his, in his obituary, he talked about the last few years of his life and how people kept wanting him to star in movies or go to the West End or go to Broadway. And he was just doing plays at the church near where he lived. And he decided that he wasn't going to act anywhere, anywhere, that he couldn't walk to, that he ultimately came to realize that he was always performing for his maker and it really didn't matter who else saw it. And that it, that ideas can change the world. It doesn't matter if it's a movie that everyone sees or a tiny little theater, it's the ideas and the way they penetrate the universe that, that matter. And so he's just going to do it from home. (laughs) I always love that story. You know, talking about working with people like, like Jack Lemon and Paul Schofield and, and or, or Denzel, where you're, you, you know, you can't help but be a little intimidated. Um, I'm curious, are you, are, are you sort of aware that now like actors might come to a set and sort of look to you as the elder statesman and, and want to ask advice of you? <laughs> it happens. It was amazing. You know, when I first read the book, The Good Lord Bird, I knew it should be a movie, but it didn't occur to me that I was old enough to play John Brown. Mm. It, you know, your, your brain is frozen. You kind of, I don't know, different individuals have different ages. You kind of feel like you're frozen at, you know, and I, I it's, it's, it's hard to realize that you've accumulated these years and that I am old enough to play the part. Uh, I aspire to be the way Jack Lemon was, which is not intimidating. I find no pleasure in making other people uncomfortable. I don't think other people do their best work when they're uncomfortable. Um, and as I said before, it's, it's so collaborative. You know, if, if Joshua Caleb Johnson isn't brilliant in The Good Lord Bird, The Good Lord Bird isn't good. I'm completely in his hands, you know? Um, and and we, it's a shared experience. And so I, it's, a, in a way, a compliment, I guess, that somebody might be impressed, I guess. I, I, I don't know, but you, you, you don't, it's not a useful feeling. I would never want to make anybody feel that way. Uh, what about people who, I mean, nobody's going out right now, but like when, when they would see you on the street, you've been a part of so many iconic movies. What, what do they want to talk to you about? What comes up the most? Is it reality bites or Gattaca weirdly still manages to, to be very prescient. Yeah. You know, what's funny about acting is that 
you really, there's just different pockets of society. You know, there's a certain group of people that will come up to me and all they'll want to talk about is sinister. You know, if you're a horror fan, you know, that's, they, oh, that's the dude from Sinister. Dude, that movie's so scary. You know, and then there's, you know, I'll see some sweet couple and they just binge watch the Before Trilogy and they don't think I was in any other movie. And then there's people that think I'm the dude from Training Day and I'll never be anything but the dude from Training Day. You know, and yeah, there's sci-fi geeks, Predestination and Gattaca. They have their favorites. Um, you know, I'll meet some jazz aficionado who wants to talk to me about Chet Baker. That movie you did was, the, you know, it's it's very interesting. I've made so many different kinds of movies now, like in different genres that uh, it's not a lot of times people don't know me. They just know the movie. And, and I, I, I like that. I knew Gattaca had made it into the collective consciousness when The Simpsons made a joke about it. <laughs> I knew it made it into the consciousness. I was, uh, well, all things go back to theater. I was, I went to see a play in Central Park, you know, the summer theater there. And I was in line for the John and I saw there's all these people around me and I realized they were Secret Service and Bill Clinton was behind me. And, and, and at, at line for the can, you know, and he was all, he just was talking at me about Gattaca and about science. And, he, you know, his brain was on fire with Gattaca. And it's, it's interesting what movies strike chords with what people. Wow. That's amazing. That was the first movie I ever saw at a test screening when I first really? moved. Okay. How yes. did that happen? Uh, you know, you have, they give out like at the mall things yeah. like, Hey, come see a movie. And what I did didn't you think of it. I loved it because I remember they kept like 12 of us afterwards and I was like a kid. I don't know why they cared about my opinion. And we loved the movie so much. And we're just like, just, just raving about it. Cause you know, they were trying to figure out how to market it and, and all yeah, that. Well, they never could figure out how to do that. <laughs> Something happened on the day of the test screening though, because I remember it was delayed by like, we had to wait two hours. Like maybe it was an OJ verdict or something. I can't remember. I just remember sitting in that theater and having to wait for two hours, which you would think would not put people in a good mood. Yeah. Such a responsive audience. It's such a, such a good movie. So, wow, that feels so long ago. <laughs> um, I actually also, I want to talk about your career as a writer because obviously you're an Oscar nominated screenwriter for your work on the before series. Uh, but you've also written several novels. I, I, I think you have one coming out this year. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Can you give us a Along your lines about when we're young, we want attention, we get old. I mean, it's been 20 years since I published a book. When I was younger, anytime I wrote anything down, I was like, hey, read this, read this. It's great. And then you get older. And, and now I'm, there's so many books you should read before you read mine. I, you know, <laughs> I feel so shy about, about publishing. I, I, I finally, I need to publish this book because I can't stop working on it. And so I just got to, you know, you never finish a book. You just let it go. Uh, it can always be better. That's the problem. You know, movies you shoot, you've got this limited amount of time and then you just make the footage as good as possible. But with a book, uh, you can always write another paragraph and make it a little better, choose a better word or rearrange chapters. It's, it's, it's unending. But yeah, this is, I have a first book uh, called The Bright Ray of Darkness coming out this year. Can you give us a tease of what it's about or, or should we figure it well, out? It's, it's, I'm writing about acting, you know, really? it's, it's, it, it's, 
it's trying to be about the life of an actor. Uh, uh, it captures, a, it's just about the production of a play. Um, the beginning of the book is the first day of rehearsal and the end is when they strike the set. You know, it's a, uh, a very simple story, but it, I have found in my life uh, tremendous personal healing through acting. Um, you know, in life, our feelings are, are always in the way you know, we, we feel things and they, they screw us up. We're at lunch with somebody and we start crying because they said this thing, you know, or, they, or we get angry or we get withdrawn or our feelings are always in the way. And acting is the one place where your feelings can be of use. They're of service because you're telling a story and you're expressing human behavior. And in learning to use those feelings, you can kind of learn to love them and see their value and see that they're teaching you. And, and so I, I've been trying to take, uh, you know, people's superficial interest in acting, you know, they're, oh, well, they're an actor, what are you, you know, um, and, and try to write about acting and try to hopefully give them a substantive experience. Uh, and, and at the same time, you know, tell about the production of a play. What's it like to be on Broadway? Well, read the book, you'll know. What was the last time you were on stage? Was it True West? Yeah, True West. It was a little, you know, about a year or so before the pandemic. I went straight from True West to uh, John Brown. And then right after we finished The Good Lord Bird, uh, the pandemic happened. I hope it's a good time in a strange way to be writing about the theater because the theater is suffering so much right now. You know, musicians and, and, and actors in the theater are, it's a tough year. You know, it's, it's a big blow. Uh, and, and so I, I'm happy, I feel like the timing's right to kind of celebrate how, what a valuable experience I think it is for people to sit together in a room and tell stories and be with one another, breathe the same air, even though right now we can't. I miss just going. I know. I know. Um, you know, we, we opened up by talking about Explorers and how you sort of learned at an early age that, that certain films might not get the love they deserve at the time. Um, over the years, have there been certain films or projects that, that you know, you wish more people had seen or, or you'd like to tell people now to check out? Well, you know, you love everything you do while you're doing it. Um, I, I, I hesitate to do that because I mean, there's so many little films. I, you know, I, I, you've mentioned Sally Hawkins a couple of times. She's one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with. And we did this movie called Maudie about she plays a painter in Canada. And if you're interested in a small romance, it's a killer film. She's amazing in it. And uh, that was one. And you've mentioned a, a slew of the others. Um, Born to be Blue is a personal favorite. Just Chet Bay. I love jazz music and... Uh, this, you know, I always love, I love the movie Brooklyn's Finest um, and all this stuff about, you know, I've stuff this, this year about social justice, you know, I've played a lot of cops. And so I've learned a lot about that whole world and that environment and training day assault on precinct 13 Brooklyn's Finest. Those are three uh, police movies. I really like. Uh, and you obviously you've worked with so many amazing directors. I mean, and, and kind of early in their careers, like you worked with Alfonso Cuarón on what might have been his first American movie. Well, he'd done a, kids. He'd done a little um, 
a little princess. Oh, I love and, little princess. Yeah, and but so he he'd made some movies in Mexico that were terrific, and then he got this his break in Hollywood was to do a little princess, and then that went really well. And Great Expectations was his kind of first grown up Hollywood picture. What do you like from directors? You know, when you show up to set, what are what are you hoping the relationship will be like? Uh, well, when I was younger, I used to think like that. Like, I'd, I want somebody to be like X. And now I work really hard on accepting people how they are. Um, making a movie isn't long enough to change a director. Mm-hmm. You're not going to change the way they work. Um, there's a Marlon Brando quote I, I love early in his career when his passion was very alive, he used to say this thing where I try to spiritually marry my director. I want to, I want to be their bride. I want to, I want to be the extension of their imagination because we only really win if we win together. You know what? I mean, sometimes good things happen when people fight, but my favorite experiences are, are when the collective imagination really catches fire So I try hard these days to try to figure out the way a director wants to work. I I feel capable at this point to work lots of different ways. Um, And I I pride myself on it. And so I try to meet them where they're at. You know, some directors really care about the visual image there. A lot of them are OCD. They're completely hung up about, they can't, if this thing is in the frame, you know, it drives them crazy. I did a movie with Pavel Pawlikowski, you know, is a brilliant director and I loved him. And, 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 but I remember I had to do this scene where I had to fall down in the middle of Paris on my hands and knees and sob, you know, and I, 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 I'm sobbing and he says, cut. I'm like, wait, it's, it's not good. He goes, I this extra three extras back has got a green jacket on. It looks terrible. (laughs) And when I was younger, I would have kicked my bag and, you know, and now I'm just like, Hey, look, that's, he's, and when you see his movies, you can tell he cares about the entirety of the frame. He cares about every little, he doesn't, he's watching you, but he's also watching other elements. And I, I start to feel the job of the actor is to excel in whatever environment you get set in, you know, that there is no permission to fail. What about you? Because you're obviously an accomplished director yourself. What what do you think of yourself as a director? Are you someone who's really focused on working with actors? Are you really obsessed with the visual image? Where, where do you fall? I love, the thing I love about directing is giving other people a chance to excel and creating an environment that is an environment that I would find most rewarding. You, you know, um, and yes, part of that is <clears throat> one of those people is a cinematographer. I want the cinematographer to be proud of their work, but I, I want it. The, my favorite movies are when all the elements, acting, photography, music, editing, you know, uh, costume design, when they're all working as, as, as a whole and you can't like, when you walk out of The Godfather, you don't you don't think about the actor. You think about Michael Corleone. You don't think about the costume design. It's just the world. You don't think about the editing. It's just the God. It's just great. You don't know why it's great or what element or how the music worked or um, one of my first. I love this story I'm about to tell you. Is like the first film I directed. Uh, 
Well, it wasn't the first film, but it was one of them. And and I I, I was doing a movie with Sidney Lumet, and uh, before the devil knows you're dead. And I, Sydney was amazing, and Phil Hoffman and I we were having a ball making that movie. And after it was over, I asked Sydney if he would watch my film. I'm like, would he watch my film and tell me how I was doing? He said, yes, it's good. You, you, you're going to be a good director. You know, and you, know, you start fishing for more compliments or something. And I said, uh, what did you think about that scene? He goes, oh, that scene. It's funny that you asked me about that scene. And I'm like, why? He goes, because I could tell you really thought that was a great scene. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, that would have been a great scene if it was a movie about a film director. Instead, it was a film about the characters, and that scene was about the director. It was really well directed. I hated that scene, you know? And I think about that often now when I see movies where the director's, you know, trying to make a statement or something. My, it's fine, you know? I mean, you know, some of the greatest directors, you know, Godard, whatever, that, that, Godard movies are about Jean-Luc Godard, you know? I mean, that's just who they're about. But my favorite movies are the ones that are about the characters and where y- you disappear in- into the world and, uh, and not one element outshines another element. I mean, uh, I would, when I directed Blaze, for example, Steve Cousins is a cinematographer, and we were really trying to match the kind of roots musicians. We, we didn't want to be self-conscious. We wanted to match the tone and mood. I remember Steve said this great thing to me when we were prepping. He's like, can we please not mention any other movies? Like, don't tell me you want it to look like Easy Rider. Don't tell me you want it to look like Badlands. Don't tell me you want it to look like Do the Right Thing. I don't, I don't want to hear any of that. Tell me what it feels like. You know, what, it, what does it feel like in your heart? You know, what, what, what time of day is it? What mood is it? What's the feeling? And I just started, that movie was set in the period of my childhood. And I would just talk to him about, about my childhood. And that movie looks exactly like the way I wanted it to. But I never, I didn't tell him anything about what it felt like. As someone who wears so many hats, when you start to develop a project, how do you know what it'll be? Like, do you, do you always know from the start it'll be a film or a documentary or maybe a novel? How does, how does that sort of uh, find its way to you? No, part of I'm an actor. That's that's what I am. I, I have no ego about anything but acting. Um, and I, there was a quote on my wall in my bathroom when I was a kid, and it's like one of these shaker expressions. You know, improve in one talent, and God will give you more. Was one of them um, to master a craft, you must apprentice three. And I, I think somehow I, I love writing and directing I, because they allow me an insight into my own vocation uh, and they deepen my awareness of my true vocation. Um, when you write, your respect for writing goes up. You know, I, I watch young people come in to audition for a movie, or, you know, say I'm acting in or directing or something, and they start changing the words all the time. They start thinking they're little improvs or genius. And I'm like, you know, the writer's right here. Or, you know, I wrote that scene and I worked really hard on those lines. So 
if you think you're going to improve them in these five minutes, well, if you want me to hire you, like I, I, it, it's, I remember once, I'm sorry, I'm floating all over, but it, my brain is going with this. I remember I was, <laughs> I was doing a movie with this friend of mine and he's like, this, these lines are terrible. And I'm like, I know that's why we're getting paid. <laughs> like we can know they're terrible, but the audience cannot. We have to sell this. Like we got to make it great. We got to dig in and figure out why these dummies wrote it this way and sell it. And it's, it's a, it's a better mindset to, to be in. Um, usually I follow my nose and you know, sometimes like when I started Good Lord Bird, for example, I, you know, I kind of thought I would play Owen and Jeff Bridges would play John Brown. That's kind of like what I was thinking about when I started it. And then I slowly realized how old I was. And, uh, you know, I mean, but I always knew, you know, I read this amazing book and I wanted to put it on screen. I didn't know it was going to be a limited series. I thought it would be a feature film. You know, it just, your nose, you, you start talking to friends. It, re- it reveals itself. I was actually thinking because you made the wonderful documentary Seymour an introduction and I was like that would act and I'm and I'm it's a great film but I was like that would actually make a really good narrative movie uh you know I I don't know if that's something you'd be interested in down the road (laughs) not really what that film came out of having this amazing experience with Seymour Bernstein and having him play for me this 88-year-old piano maestro and feeling like the world, I wish everyone could be seated in the seat that I'm in right now. Mm-hmm. So I just tried to capture the moment. Um, Blaze started because I met, you know, I'm friends with this musician, Ben Dickey, and he started playing Blaze Foley songs. I'm like, shit, I should make this a movie. You should play Blaze Foley in a movie. And it it all generated out of that. And, um, you know, different things happen for their own strange reasons. He said. Uh, <laughs> um, so obviously we have to talk about Good Lord Bird, uh, which you created, produce, write, and star on the show um, as abolitionist John Brown. Uh, you you found the book. Was that how it originally came its way to you? It was, it, was it a situation where you were just reading a book and you're like, this has to be a project? Or did someone recommend it to you? Well, I was, on, I was shooting um, The Magnificent Seven and... Mm-hmm. It was a really bizarre experience, actually, because I was doing this scene with Denzel where uh, my my character is suffering from PTSD from the Civil War. And 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 Denzel has a scene where, he, you know, he's trying to give me confidence. He says, the war's over. The war's over. And my line to him is the war's not over. It goes on and on. All this violence and, and lines to that to that nature. And I'm learning my lines and we're driving through Louisiana. And on the news station, there, you know, some talk radio people are talking about whether or not they should be allowed to hang the Confederate flag over the South Carolina um, Capitol. And I'm having these lines like the war's not over, the war's not over. And, and then I go to set and I, I put on this 1860s garb and Antoine's directing me and we're in the middle of Louisiana and, and there's a lot of strange feelings in the air about race and in this country. And it was very present, you know? Uh, And I I found myself, it was just a very stirring experience to reenact this scene with Denzel and the camera operator, 
leans over to me and says, you should play John Brown. And I said, what, what makes you say that? He said, I'm reading this book, The Good Lord Bird, and I'm just looking at you and I'm thinking you should play John Brown. And I, I thought, what, what is that title, The Good Lord Bird? And he said, yeah, it's, it's a book where you, you know, it's about if you see a bird, it's so beautiful and you just say, good Lord. You know, that's a good Lord bird. I, I remember it just, I got this weird feeling in my spine. I was like, that's a great title. And I couldn't forget it. So I ordered the book and I read it and I was sitting there at home and I'm just, dev- I, just devouring this book and I'm laughing my ass off. And my wife says, what are you laughing about? And I said, uh, this, this book. And she says, isn't that about John Brown? Isn't that about the abolitionist? And I'm like, yeah. She's like, how is that funny? And I'm like, you have to read it. It's amazing. And she read it. And then she was like, we have to make this into a movie. And it just kind of happened like that. Wow. And bringing things full circle to theater again, you uh, reunited with Jason Blum for this mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> I think I heard him say in an interview, he's, he's always trying to get you to do things with him. Well, you know, you can't make new old friends, right? You know, <laughs> uh, And he's done a lot of amazing work, you know, with Black Klansmen and Get Out and, um, and, you know, the whole horror genre that he's been involved in has brought, brought an awareness to him about different communities and the ways in which fear works in people's lives and how much it's just brought a huge social justice issues into his life. You know, I mean, I could, we could talk about it for hours. Um, and I knew that James McBride's work would really speak to him and that Blum has a muscle to get something like this made. You know, it's a very incendiary book. It's a very, very radical book, very hard to get made. And I knew Jason would care about it, you know. The show, it, it walks such a tightrope with its tone because it is, I, I, I keep telling people uh, it's very funny, <laughs> um, surprisingly so. It's also just, it's very smart. It, it walks that line and it always works. Um, it sounds like, I haven't read the book, but it sounds like a lot of that was in the book. Oh, that's McBride. You know, I mean, that, the, the razor's edge walk that we had to do on that film was... McBride has a tone that is extremely original. Um, it's a little Mark Twain. It's a little Quentin Tarantino. It's a little Coen Brothers. It's a, uh, but it's, it's all James McBride. But I knew he uses humor to talk about political things that we don't want to talk about. I mean, I have to say, like, I've learned more what's the right way to say this is like when you listen to George Carlin or um, Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor or Chris Rock, or they actually can really change the way you think in the ways that a lot of like politicians talking at you with an agenda. Don't there's something about laughter that your body just laughs. You don't have a political, you know, you just, you laugh, you don't laugh. And, And one of the ways to best expose hypocrisy and really talk about hurtful things sometimes is to make people laugh. And if you make them laugh together, you can really do something magical. I mean, that for me was the magic of Get Out. You know, is it, it managed to be one of the best films about race in America disguised as a horror film. It was scary and it was hysterically funny. 
But whereas if, if somebody said to you, do you want to see an important film about race? And we go, uh, yeah. And they wouldn't go, you know. Um, and but if you say you want to see this horror movie called Get Out. It's really funny. You think, yeah. And then you walk out. And you're like, you know, that movie really made me think. McBride has the same power. He, he He's telling you about a story about a boy who goes in a dress who gets kidnapped by John Brown. I mean, it's just a hysterical. It's as interesting and fun a story as Huck Finn. It just also happens to look squarely, deeply into some of the most hurtful wounds of this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but he never loses his wit. And by doing that, I think you allow for an opportunity for healing. That's my hope. And you've played real people before. Obviously, you've played Chet Baker and um, your character in Maudie, your character, the person you played in Maudie was a real person. You've played Tesla. <laughs> um, does it change your approach at all when you're preparing to play a character, when you have things to draw from? Uh, and, and do you have a preference? Do you like to create a character from scratch or do you kind of like having, you know, things to pull from? Well, I guess if I had a preference, I, I love to do original work, right? Like that, that's, it's really fun. But when you were playing Chet Baker, I always, when I'm doing something original, like let's say I'm doing Before Midnight, uh, Before Sunset, one of those movies, my challenge is to create such a three-dimensional character for you that it's as if it's a real person. Now, if I'm playing Chet Baker, I don't have to imagine what his favorite color is, what kind of car he drove. I don't have to imagine what his relationship with his mom is. I can find all that out. And so the, the backstory in my imagination can become very powerful. Um, and the, it, it, in, a, in a certain ways, it, it is easier because you have so much to build on. With the good Lord Bird, it was a little different because I'm not playing John Brown, the man. I'm playing James McBride's John Brown. You know, James McBride, I mean, John Brown as he conceived him. It's John Brown told through the eyes of Henry Shackelford. I've got a 14-year-old protagonist who looks at me like a crazy old white guy. It doesn't mean I am just crazy, um, but that's the way he saw me. And that's the way the story needs to be told. Um, there were people <laughs> on that set that thought I was out of my mind with how over the top I was in, in the show. But I knew that that story has got to be it can't be solemn. It, it can't be uh, honest. It can't be sincere. It was a bit, it's a tall tale. There's an aspect of caricature to it. That's what makes the, that's what the engine of the humor is, you know? And so um, each, each job has its own riddle. I mean, that's the, there is no one trick that works for every part. It's, it's about understanding the milieu you're in, understanding the spell you're trying to cast, you know? I'm actually racking my brain right now trying to think, have, have you ever played a real person who is still alive that you could talk to and consult? And, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember one of the, the best ones was Nando Parado. I played uh, in Alive, one of the survivors of the plane crash, and Nando came to set, and I remember uh, he gave me a little secret about why he thought he survived and others didn't. Uh, he, but I, I can't tell you because- Oh, I, you just built that up, come on. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't even tell the other survivors. Wow. <laughs> he, he had a little secret. And wow. uh, it was a great, it's, you know, Kazan talks about this, you know, for all the actors out there, you know, whatever you think about Kazan's politics, you gotta read his book called The Life. 
I think it's mandatory reading for a, a person in this uh, in this field. And, you know, part of the magic of him is understanding secrets and and things that we're scared to show or things that we're scared to reveal and how they drive our behavior. And when you understand your character's secret, you know, you, you can understand their motivation in, in ways that might be surprising. Uh, and it, it, it's in, so in a way, Nando Parado gave me my character's Kazan secret. Do you create secrets for all your characters, even the fictional ones? I try to have a secret with myself about why I'm doing each part and what I hope to give you um, something personal about why I think, and it doesn't, even if it's like one of the most personal performances I feel I ever gave was in Sinister, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's a guy in a midlife crisis who's at war with his ambition, you know, and in a horror movie, the ambition, you know, the, the demon of ambition is a real demon, but it's still something I can play and I can, I can put inside this genre film something personal to me. And the same thing with the Linkletter film. Uh, I try to, you know, for lack of a better word, I might call it a mantra, you know, that there's some thing I'm meditating on that I want to achieve in this performance, some aspect of my development as a man, as a human, that I could... I can use this character to further deepen this one aspect of myself. And that becomes my, you know, secret as it were. Did you have a secret for John Brown? And would you be willing to share it with us if you did? You know, they sound corny if you talk about him. You can't talk about it because it's kind of like, if you ever set, do you ever set, you go to a concert and it doesn't matter if it's Neil Young or somebody you admire and they start telling you why they wrote a song and they go on and they go on and they go on about what the song's really about. And you're like, first of all, for me, that song is about my grandma. So you're ruining it. Do you, you know, I don't want to know all your dumb secrets that why you thought that rhyme was so clever. Um, there are issues, you know, John Brown and uh, Reverend Toller from First Reformed were wonderful opportunities for me to talk about faith and have characters that are exploring their struggles, war, disappointment with society, disappointment with the self, in, you know, and, and the ways in which religion and, and aspects of faith can come through a person. So th both those characters shared a similar tack there. Uh I have to talk about the ensemble of Good Lord Bird because this, this cast is just phenomenal. And some of these actors I'm familiar with, but a lot of them I'm not. They, they're, they're, they're kind of new to me, um, obviously starting with uh, the actor who plays Onion, Joshua Caleb Johnson. Um, where did you even find him? Oh, man. You know, that's, some shows are blessed and some shows are doomed. And, and I felt when I met Joshua that this show might have a, you know, that, that, that we might be exactly where we're supposed to be because it's very difficult to give, you know, a big production like this, you know, Joshua was our quarterback. We were only going to go as far as he was going to take us. And if we didn't find the right person, we were still going to have to make the movie because 
we had a start date and we, you know, but if we didn't find him, I was used to say, damn, we might as well not even start. And this young man showed up and he has all the things we needed. I mean, obviously the talent, but when you're a young person, it's not a lot of young people are talented. You also need discipline, curiosity, a willingness to learn. Um, he, he had all the components and he showed up every day. You know, he had to do huge scenes with David Diggs, huge scenes with me. He did scenes with other young actors. Um, he had to be, he had to wear a dress sometimes. He had to wear pants another time. He had to be in gunfights and ride a horse and wash dishes. I mean, I, I worry for him only that it's going to be a long time before he has a part that good because it's a long time before any of us have a part that good. Um, and, uh, but he was up for the task. And so that was a tremendous blessing on, on the show. Was he brought to you through a casting director? Yeah. Kim Coleman. She's an amazing casting director and, uh, and she found him and, and we put him through the works auditioning him a lot. And he has a wonderful family and they were a real support system to them. One of the things I, I learned on boyhood is a lot of times when you cast young actors, you really have to be careful to cast the family. Because if they don't have the right support system at home, they're not going to be able to, to do it. I've heard that a lot, actually. Um, I'm actually curious, going back to when you were uh, starting as an actor, um, have you always been good at auditioning? I mean, you were working so much early on. I, I, I assume you were great. I don't, I, I don't know if I've ever met an actor who thought they were great at auditioning. <laughs> auditioning is a it's a terrible experience because you're being asked to be creative in a hostile environment. I mean, it's very different to act in a room full of people that love you and are rooting for you and want it to work. than people then act in a room of people going, is he the one? Mm, I don't like the way he does his hair. Why does he have that bracelet? Mm, he looks, why is he moving so much? You know, this is probably apropos of nothing, but I'm such an actor that when forgive the little digression, but when Joe Biden gave his acceptance speech after he won the election and, and he and Kamala went up there, I was like, he looked to me like an actor who just gotten the part. I said, if he could have been that confident the whole time he was campaigning, he was so smart and on point. And he was like, I got this. He was saying the right thing. And he was so um, charismatic. And I was like, oh, he got the part. <laughs> it's like, you know, when you're auditioning, we're all on our left foot. You know, uh, it's so hard. I'm guessing it's probably been a long time since you had to audition for a role. Every now and then some jerk makes me audition. And it, uh, <laughs> and, uh, I, I really have to say, I, I my, you know, my daughter's acting now. And I'm, I look back on the days when I auditioned a lot with a lot of fondness because I, I learned so much. Because one of the things about auditioning is a lot of the times you're going in for a part that you're not right for. You're not ever going to get this part in a million years. But working on it and working on characters that you're not easily castable for really does help expand your insight and your ability to see beyond what might be a natural fit. One of the things that I think is super hard for young actors is when they get cast and are successful in something, all anybody wants them to do is to do that again. And if they do that again, they're going to ruin their career. It, it's a catch 22. Uh, you, you have to keep growing and auditioning is, is the best way to grow. 
but it's so painful. I, I, uh, I hate not getting a part and I, it, it makes me angry. I, I never forget anybody I auditioned for who did not give me a part. Really? Do you keep like a list? I, I, I'm Scorpio and I hate them forever. <laughs> but sometimes they probably come back around and offered you another part later on, I would think. Yeah. And I say, no. <laughs> you really? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But, you know, it's very tough. I mean, you know, the it's good practice for getting bad reviews. You know, it, it's it's uh, it, bad reviews hurt, too. You know, um, and uh, because I remember I had an amazing experience. I offer this to the actors in, in the who might be watching this is right before Dead Poet Society opened. Peter Weir took all of us young people out to dinner and he said, uh, I'm going to tell you this. People are going to review the movie tomorrow. All these reviews are going to come out. And we made a good movie. So if somebody says we made a bad film, they're wrong. And if somebody says we made a great film, they're wrong. It's, it's very good. It's not as good as we could have done it. And it's a lot better than we could have done. And you all did exactly what I asked you to do. And I'm very, very happy with your contribution. I would cast all of you again. So if somebody in the New York Times says you did a terrible job, you didn't because you did what I asked you to do. And you did the take I wanted and I chose it and I'm happy with it. And if somebody says, you know, you did a great job, you didn't. You did, you did fine. You did really well. And uh, it, was a, it was a really strange conversation because we all wanted to be heaped with praise. But at the same time, it was it was wonderful conversation to have. Like we did our best and people don't know what we were trying to do. They don't know what the director asked you to do. They don't know that they made you wear that stupid hat. And if you didn't wear the hat, you were going to get fired, you know. Um, <laughs> so but but bad reviews are as tough as as not getting the part. Mm. I hate to disagree with the great Peter Weir, but he's wrong. You guys made a great movie. Sorry. <laughs> one funny, well, I'll tell you one funny story before we have, I'm sure we, I've been talking too long, but I remember really early in my career uh, screen testing for a part I didn't get. And the reader was Phil Seymour Hoffman, you know? No way. And, yeah. So I'm reading, I'm, you know, he's playing opposite with me and uh, he wasn't in the movie or anything. He was just hired by the casting director to be the reader. And on the break, we went over the little coffee table and, and I knew Phil and I was like, how, how am I doing? He goes, you're crushing it, but fuck these guys. You're never going to get the part. They want somebody. They don't want anybody as interesting as you. And it was, it was, <laughs> forgive the language. I'm sorry, but uh, it was, it was such a fun experience because I really respected Phil and I was like, oh, I'm not going to get the part. Damn. But Phil thinks these guys are clowns and he thinks I'm doing better. And you realize that we're, there is no good actor or bad actor. You, you know, there's just these situations you get put in. And in some situations you can succeed and in some situations you're just not going to succeed. So when you're involved with the casting, like Good Lord Bird, um, is there, you must first of all have, have a special empathy for the people who are coming in and, and reading for you. Um, is there anything that you would want actors to know, you know, if they're in that room with you, what, what you're looking for, what you're not looking for? There's a great 
if anybody's interested, there's Kazan has this thing called the actor's vow. And it's, it's a, it's a vow. You can say to yourself that you're, you are in charge of your art. You are not in charge of the world's reaction to it. And if you are serious about performing, it's a, it's a life's journey. And it's, if, if you want to give to it, then it'll never disappoint you. And if you want it to give back to you, you're going to probably always be disappointed. Um, I found that actor's vow very powerful because it, it makes you understand that you're on your own journey and that it's not up to these directors or these critics or these producers or this writer or whoever to decide whether you're good. It's up to them to decide if you're right for their show. And if you're not right, then you don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, you know, and so to take ownership of your own being, you know, and that, that you, uh, you know, nobody can make you feel inferior without your permission. You know, that great Eleanor Roosevelt quote, um, nobody can take away your innate worth. And so don't let them, don't give that away. Um, I also noticed in the Good Lord Birdcast, obviously you're, you're working with a lot of people that you've, you've known for years. Steve Zahn uh, uh, shows up, Ella Coltrane, isn't it? Which is so lovely. <laughs> um, and somehow you got Maya Hoff, which is fantastic. She's so good. I, you know, I, I saw her on Stranger Things and I said, I have to have that girl. Uh, <clears throat> no, yeah, it was, a, it was a coup to get Maya to play that part. She was so awesome. How did you, did, did she express to you early on she wanted to be an actor? Like, did, how did you feel about that? Um, it was very obvious to me that as a very young person that I was uh, charged with raising a, a very powerful thinker. She was a poet from a young age, you know, and I, I don't know how that poetry will manifest, whether it's in acting or, or music or directing or photography, you know, when she was a kid, I didn't know if she'd be an actor, but I knew that she was an artist. She would constantly say the most profound and surprising things and the strangest things would make her melancholy and the strangest things would fill her with curiosity and um she's always had that and so as she gets more in charge of herself she becomes a a terribly valuable resource on a film set because she's very creative um and whether she's talking about her costume or staging a scene or what time of day a scene should be shot or you know or or how she relates to Joshua um, or whatever her scene partner is. Um, I, I find her to be an absolute delight to be around. And, um, and so people ask me, are you, do you want her to be an actor? I, I, it's not up to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, she's her own person. She always has. It's not even up to me to have an opinion about it. She is herself. And, and that is a, a great and, amazing thing to witness. So I just want her to continue to be herself in whatever ways. It does not surprise me at all to watch her excel at acting because I always thought that she would if she set her mind to it. Uh, One of the actors that I I feel sort of feel you discovered because I wasn't familiar with his work before is 
uh, Hubert Point du Jour, which is the best name ever. I just struggle saying who plays Bob. Um, was he someone you knew or was he someone you found through the audition process? No, you know, I mean, I'd love to say I did because, you know, one of the things I discovered with McBride's writing is that people with a theater training really excelled with McBride's writing. It's not naturalistic. It, it's not real. Um, so people like David Diggs really understood how to handle that dialogue. Orlando Jones really understood that dialogue. David Morse really understood that dialogue. They could really have fun with it. But um, And Hubert, I, I just felt like he was, you know, he was our ace in the hole. Whenever we needed somebody to come through in a scene, it was always Hubert because he's, he's got a natural grace and wit and dexterity with language and he's facile with all emotions. And I think he's going to have a huge career. I just, uh, I, I, I walked away from that experience being absolutely blown away by him. It, it sounds like a strange thing to say, but you guys have such great chemistry together on screen. Um, I don't know. Did you do any sort of chemistry reads with some of these actors? Yeah, sure. But you know, I've been doing this so long that I, I know pretty much immediately mm -hmm. how it's going to go. I mean, you know, it, uh, you know, like somebody's played guitar their whole life can kind of tell how somebody picks up the guitar, how they're going to play it. Um, I knew immediately that Hubert and I spoke the same language. We, 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 we think about acting in the same way. Um, and I, before I even worked with him, I was working with him on how to help Joshua. You know, he has a lot of big scenes with Joshua, big scenes. They make it look effortless. So you don't really notice that it's just like a five page scene they did in one take. Uh, but they, but Hubert understands you know, just simple things about talking and listening and being present and, uh, and, 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 letting the camera disappear and letting the imagination come forward. And I mean, he just, he understands all that instinctually or, or not instinctually, he's learned it, um, but he's, he's good at it. And um, so I, I don't know, I enjoyed playing with him. I'm glad that you said that I, about three days into working with him, I wanted to do a play with him. I was like, what can we do together? I want to, I want to do something great with you, you know? Well, I mean, uh, I feel like, there, there, there has to be a possibility you could do a second season of The Good Lord Bird, even if it's like a prequel or, you know. <laughs> John Brown ends on the gallows. I don't want to give it away. But I mean, yes, you could you could do it. You could follow the story of Henry Shackelford. But the truth is that I think one of the things that makes sure. The Good Lord Bird special is bad TV is kind of like juggling. It's shucking and jiving. They're just trying to entertain you. And a gr great TV has a beginning, middle and end and a thesis and a statement and is offering you something. And it, it has to have a beginning, middle and an end or it, it doesn't have a point. You know, that's why like when they say jump in the shark and they're in the 12th episode of Happy Days, they're just shucking and jiving, right? They got these great characters and, and they're just making it roll. And we love the characters, but the story doesn't have a point anymore, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and so... I'm proud of the good Lord bird because what we really managed to do is to make a seven hour film. And yes, you could continue the story of Henry Shackelford, but you'd have to talk to James McBride about that. This is, this is his, you know, we we're players in his song. 
You know, this is this is his material. And if, if he ever had anything to say about the continued adventures of Henry Shackelford, you'd, you'd have to ask him. You referred to The Good Lord Bird as a film a couple times. And I was curious if that was because you see it as a seven hour movie or if maybe at one time you envisioned it as a film. I think when I started, I, I thought of it as a film. Um, my wife and Jason Blum were both adamant that the problem with film is I would have had to, I would have had to cut out four fifths of the book, you know, and that, that we're living audiences are experiencing stories in a different way than they used to. You know, I mean, people are listening to six hour podcasts for crying out loud. People are, there's the, the, the form is changing. And so the advantage of a limited series is that we could continue the exact same architecture that McBride had created for the novel. We didn't have to pour water in the beer. We didn't have to chop off the best parts to make it, you know, we could really tell the whole story as it was conceived. And that was amazing to be able to do. And again, I'm not trying to be greedy, maybe a little, but, but I am saying prequel or, you know, um, deleted scenes from these adventures. You could, just saying if, if season two was ever possible. Talk to James McBride. I will send him a strongly worded letter. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this is a period piece. You're working with animals. You're, you're working outside. Um, was it a challenging shoot? I mean, this is the most <laughs> challenging thing I ever did in my life. I mean, the, really? oh, God. the first day, um, it's 107. I'm all in wool. I'm doing a scene where I have to have a shotgun hidden in my jacket. I literally, I, if I didn't think I was old enough to play the part, I learned the first day that I was because I was the closest I ever came to a heart attack. I'm shouting at these people and screaming at them, shoving guns. And I, and every time you fire the guns, it gets hotter in that room, <clears throat> jumping on a horse. And uh, I mean, those are just the physical parts that were hard. The subject matter is hard. The tone is hard. Um the world is hard. Looking at that period of history breaks your heart. Um, and, and, and so asking people to reenact these painful situations, uh, explaining to a child that they should, they're playing a part where they're for sale. I mean, why would you ever, I mean, you have to believe in the power of art and the power of story and that in reenacting these, uh, events, you can learn from them and you can grow from them. And by not looking at them, something else happens. You know, if you don't look at it, it's another darker thing happens. Uh, But it's very painful. And then to do that, and also like, then you're doing the story and the story is a sense of humor. It's a very dangerous walk. and, and, And it was very challenging for everybody in the cast. Um, we needed McBride to come to set a lot and talk to us about what the goals were. You know, we were, we were shooting in Virginia on the 300th anniversary of the first slave ship's arrival. We were shooting a slave insurrection scene. Uh, and, and it was, you know, Kevin Hooks was directing. He's a beautiful man and a beautiful director. And it was very challenging for everybody to kind of go like, all right, why are we doing this? What are we in service of? And it's 107 and the horses can't stop, you know, doing what horses do. 
<laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, it was it was challenging. I mean, I'm going to guess it was also a long, probably the longest shoot you've ever done. Well, <laughs> boyhood, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still days wise. Yeah, it was extremely long. When when we started, it was 107. When we ended, it was snowing. Wow. Um, and despite, you know, the the heavy subject matter, um, was were you able to have levity on set? Could you? It's a challenging shoot. Was it a fun shoot? Um, well, the people were fun. I got to work with these amazing actors. You know, I um, I mentioned a lot a lot of their names, but it, it when you're a performer and you have a great role, you're having fun. Yeah. I mean, when we we couldn't believe how we're the first people to like reenact the Harper's Ferry raid on screen. I mean, there's been like nine thousand movies about the Alamo or D Day or all these other things, and this is one of the most dramatic moments uh, in U.S. history. Black people and white people working together to try to end slavery, uh, getting killed. Uh, you know, it, it's 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 powerful stuff. I mean, it's it's putting your finger in the electrical socket of the universe. I mean, it, it's and and I. I have a great belief in the power of McBride's writing. And I felt like it was an honor to, to tell the story. Uh, so yeah, we had fun. I mean, we, we certainly did. Are you the kind of actor who, who, you know, has trouble letting go of a role at the end of the day? Do you take it home with you? In some ways, I think it might be a little fun to be John Brown a little bit in your real life and, you know, just, just yell at people. Jason well, <laughs> Blum will tell you that I, I was a very difficult actor to talk to. I was, you know, I had this huge beard and all day long I'd be shouting at people. And then after the day was over, because I'm also a producer in the show, we'd meet to have some conference call or some meeting about what's happening with the set of the next episode. And I'd start shouting at everyone, God damn it, we're going to have that set. You know? And he'd like, all right, Ethan, stop it. Like, like, and I'm sure the character was, you know, the character, it was one of the things about actors is, you know, our emotions are our currency and, and we have to, we have to learn to access them to do our work. And then it's hard to turn it off. Exactly. You know, you, you're teaching yourself all day how to have access to anger. Well, then your wife says, do the dishes and, you know, <laughs> you turn into not your best self. You might have just answered this, but um, in your whole career, what has been your most challenging role? Oh, oh the good Lord bird. It is. Yeah, by far. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been some ones. It was, you know, if you play one of the great roles like Macbeth on Broadway, or um, I did the Coast of Utopia you mentioned was when we did it in its entirety it was nine hours. So the play started at 11 a.m. and it ended at 11 p.m. You know, with the intermissions, it was a full 12 hour experience. I mean, <laughs> those those were challenging days. But everything that's challenging in life, you know, is, they become the most magical memories. That's mm -hmm. the strangest thing about life. Right. Is the, the harder situations are, the, the more the more you, you learn and you grow from them. So when the pain of them is over you look back on them with this kind of melancholy. Uh, you know, I remember at the end of Before Midnight was really hard. That was a very difficult film to make. Um, I, I don't exactly know why, but I remember leaving Greece and being absolutely depleted. Uh, and uh, 
So there's been a few times. Uh, and can you talk at all about what you're working on next? Because I believe I heard you're working with Robert Eggers, which mm-hmm. sounds like a perfect pairing. Well, he's he's making his Viking epic. You know, uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's called The Northman. It's Alexander Sarsgaard, a bunch of great Bjork and Willem Dafoe. It's 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 going to be an amazing movie. I mean, he's he's uh, he's shooting for the fences. It's, it was a great we made it during COVID in Ireland and it's uh, very, very difficult, but we did it. Wow. What, what, what was that like? I'm so curious about filming during these new protocols. I can't wait for it to be over. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, it was beautiful because it's what we, we can learn new tricks. Uh, I never felt so grateful to be working, you know, just the simple, just to have a job felt to be needed to have a call time, uh, felt wonderful and everybody working so hard not to get each other sick. And, but it was hard, you know, there was no cast party. There's no, you know, I, I swear I work with that DP and side by side with him. I think if I sat next to him on a bus and he didn't have his mask on, I wouldn't recognize him. You know, I don't know what the guy looks like, mm-hmm. you know, worked with him for months. I, I, I never saw the guy without his mask. The same, you know, hair and makeup. It was it was it was hard. But Nicole Kidman was in it, too. It was wonderful to work with her. You have worked with so many amazing people, so many amazing actors and filmmakers. Um, is there anyone left? Is there someone you're really dying to collaborate with? So many. I mean, you mentioned Hubert. You know, there's so many. Every the wonderful thing about getting older is then there's these young people that you want to work with, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you want to get turned on by them. And uh, there's so many people. I, I want to work with Spike Lee. I've never worked with Spike. I, I, there's, I mean, that's just the first names that pop through my brain. Um, uh, it was thrilling to work with Robert Eggers. He worked totally differently than any director I've ever worked with. You know, he's a young guy. It's only his third movie or whatever, but he's he has voice with the camera, and that's a very rare thing. Really? That's so, I think he has such a fascinating process. I would, I would love to watch him more. I can't wait for you to see the movie. And, and did I hear correctly that you, you're working with Anton Fuqua again? Well, I, I I did a little part. He's, I I did a little voice thing in a movie he's doing with Jake Gyllenhaal, but I do, Antoine and I are always talking and always trying to develop something together. I mean, you're kind of, um, maybe it's like a theater thing, but I feel like you sort of formed a repertory company with uh, people like Richard Linkletter and now, you know, third collaboration with Anton Fuqua. Uh, is there a secret to getting asked back to like endearing yourself to these amazing artists? Well, you want to help the filmmaker make their film, you know, and I kind of feel like it's, it's the same secret to being a good teammate. You know, my favorite, I love sports and, I love the players who make other players great. You know, it's so fun to watch the the type of player that that helps facilitate the team. You know, uh, that's always that's always my goal is to try to help the other actor, help my scene partner, help the DP do good work, help the director. You know, that that's that's how you kind of get out of yourself. And you know, obviously, you have to protect your own work but it, it it's always you elevate when you elevate others right 
like I said, you, it seems like you've always been working and I'm just sort of curious because it is a really tough business. Um, was there ever a time you thought about doing something else outside of the entertainment industry? Um, boy, it sure seems like I should. And I mean, you know, it's like, you know, but how many people, most people when they're 13 are doing their paper route. What if I was still doing my paper route? I mean, it seems kind of pathetic to just do the same thing your whole life, but I'll say one off color remark. I feel about acting the same way I, I, I feel about sex, which is that when I was little, I used to, when I first heard about sex, I thought, well, surely that will get tiring. You wouldn't want to do that your whole life. I mean, like, you do it a couple times and then I'm sure it'll get boring and it just never gets boring. And it's the same thing with acting. It's always interesting. You can always be better at it. It's always fulfilling. Are you still learning new things about acting even at this point in your career? Of course. Yeah. I mean, anybody that get out of the game, you know, one lifetime is not enough. Nowhere near enough, you know, to, to excel at any real craft, you know, mm -hmm. um, I work with people that know so much more. I mean, the power of Sally Hawkins' imagination is tremendous. You know, the, the, she's like Nina Simone or something. She hypnotizes you. And um, it's a powerful thing. Well, I want to remind everyone watching at home that all the episodes of The Good Lord Bird are now available on Showtime. I want to thank you so, so much for being here today. Thank you for your time and, and for sharing your craft with your fellow artists. Well, thank you guys so much. Thanks for having me on the show. And I hope it wasn't boring. <laughs> Not at all. Thank you for listening to the SAG After Foundation's Conversations podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SAG After Found. We'd love to hear from you.